my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll recall that uh, we left David in a cave at En Gedi. So this evening we'd like to start by reminding you of something that you should have seen back in 1988. And that was a cover that was done for the Logos, which features En Gedi. And we're really going to get it to our brother Philip, who's living this course, we're getting short notes, we're trying to get a photograph in here to give some idea of what it would be like. And uh, this is a photo that appeared on the April issue, 1988, the Lotus. And in its original, it's a really, really beautiful photograph. And uh, it's one that gives us some idea of the Chandelier. Did you see? You're going to miss out in a minute because I'm going to have to stand over there for the next one. Sorry about that. Oh no, there's one. Hey, is this working? Can you hear me through here? Oh, didn't even know it was here. Sorry about that. Um, if you can just sort of get in your mind a picture of where we are as we're looking at this little section of En Gedi. You can see the water coming down here, a little pool of water here, the boulders, the great part of some of the many caves here, and going up, up, up the side of the, the mountain to, uh, to the top. Uh, and then heading toward Arad behind there. But if you can just sort of somehow other get in your mind, try and put yourself there. We're actually standing here with our backs to the Dead Sea, like that. So in other words, behind us is the Dead Sea, on the other side of the Dead Sea are the mountains of Moab, and we're looking straight at this hill that's going up, it goes up very, very steeply, and as we mentioned at our last class, uh, way up this hill there is a great stream that comes out, that's an underground stream that comes all the way from somewhere near Jerusalem, underground all the way, and then bursts forth up here at En Gedi. And apparently in the days of David and in earlier times, it was much the same as we'd see it today. And it's really quite remarkable, because the whole of that mountain, uh, along the, the whole length of the Dead Sea, uh, is still very much like it was after the uh, great conflagration that took uh, place with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, it's there, it's barren, and it's desolate. And in the whole of that area, you just find this one little uh, stretch of, of uh, land that is uh, really beautiful because, of course, the fresh water is there. There are bamboos, there's all sorts of green and growth there. There's, you can see ample water. We're not very far, actually, from sea level, the level of the Dead Sea, where this picture was actually taken. In fact, I've got one at home somewhere, a slide, taken in almost exactly that same place. So we can appreciate a little bit more there how the David and his men in fleeing to En Gedi would have no difficulty in finding caves there that they could hide in and also the undergrowth would shelter them quite a bit as well. And uh, so there is that very beautiful little place there that uh, is a wonderful part of the land. So that's where David is when we uh, are dealing with this 24th chapter. Just to refresh our minds quickly, you'll recall that David and his men were in this particular cave that they had discovered and was suitable for their means. We suggested that it would be a very large cave because there were some hundreds of men there. Then all of a sudden, to their amazement, they heard footsteps approaching and Saul, of all the caves that he could have gone into in that area, picked that particular cave. And we suggested at our last class that no doubt that was absolutely providential so that we would see how Saul behaved and we would see, Yahweh would see how David would behave under these circumstances. He could very well have taken Saul's life and in fact, remember, it was suggested to him in verse 4, Behold, the day of which Yahweh saith unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. But David would not touch him, as he says in the speech that he makes, after Saul leaves the cave. So Saul eventually, and we believe in the darkness of night, leaves the cave, and David comes out of the cave and follows after him. And we dealt with a number of these verses at our last class, verse 9, 10, 11 and 12, in which David really challenged Saul in the integrity of his heart, and told Saul that he had done him no harm, and therefore he himself was really deserving of no harm. And by cutting off the hem of the skirt of his robe, he was able to illustrate to Saul that he had actually been in his power. And had David desired to exercise what power he had at that moment over the sleeping Saul, apparently sleeping anyway, he could have taken his life and disposed of him entirely. 
So that it was only by the mercy of David that uh, Saul survived. And you'll notice when we get down to verse 13, remember he says there, as saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. When it says the proverb of the eight ancients, no doubt there were many, many uh, wise sayings from godly men down through the ages of time. Some may well have been attributed to men such as Job and others of, uh, of ancient times. They were not recorded in scripture, but they were quite well known. This certainly was not a proverb from the book of Proverbs, because the book of Proverbs hadn't been written at this time, as we would very well appreciate. But you just look at what he is saying there, and obviously it is a very wise uh, proverb, otherwise David would never have quoted it. But what he says here is, as saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked. Now it seems so logical that it's almost meaningless, but of course it's not meaningless. You see, what that proverb is really saying, and what David is illustrating here, is that actions result from the state of our mind. So that if our mind is centred upon the word, and our mind is centred upon godly things, then we will be moved to do godly things for godly reasons. Because that's what we have in our mind, and that's what dominates our thought. On the other hand, if we allow ourselves to be dominated by the flesh, and the thinking of the flesh, then the mind of the flesh within us will produce fleshly actions. And so therefore, David is really telling Saul that it is a wicked mind that will produce wicked actions. The Jerusalem Bible renders it this way. Wickedness goes out from the wicked, which is really explaining it a little more, isn't it? Wickedness goes out from the wicked. And so therefore, what David was trying to tell Saul was that he should look very deeply into his own mind which had produced the actions that had caused David to be in this terrible state of affairs in the cave of En Gedi, being pursued by a man who should not have pursued him, being hunted down for a crime that he has never committed, being an innocent victim in the whole of Saul's uh, rage that he was out working against David. So David is explaining to Saul that he was not going to descend to Saul's level. He was not going to try and match the evil which was being manifested by Saul. He was not going to do, as the world has an expression today, fight fire with fire, which is really only another way of saying fight flesh with flesh. David was not going to do that. And the very use of this proverb that he quotes here, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, it's as though David is obliquely asking Saul, Saul, are you wicked? Is the wickedness that you are perpetrating against me, an innocent person, the result of a wicked mind, rather than a mind dominated by the spirit of the truth? And so therefore, the way David deals with this is really very beautiful. It's a challenge to Saul, without being rude or disrespectful, to the man who, after all, at this time, was still the anointed of Yahweh, the king of Israel. But David then, having dealt with that, says in verse 14, finally, he says, After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? They seem to be rather strange terms, don't they? Why does he say that? Do you come out after a dead dog and after a flea? Well, really, it's, it's, a, it's a phrase, a terminology that David uses here to show really just how pathetic Saul was in what he was doing. You see, what, greater, what more hopeless cause than you, could you have than that of a dead dog? For one thing, a, de- a dog was an unclean animal under the law. But here is Saul with no less than 3,000 crack troops. The pick of his soldiers... And here's David with his pathetic little group of men, 400 or 600 men. What did Saul really think that he was doing? It was almost like pursuing with a great army after a dead dog. A dead dog is of no value to anybody. And certainly doesn't need any great army to, uh, to, uh, to deal with it. What about the aspect of a flea? Well, could there be anything representing greater physical weakness than a flea? So therefore David uses the analogy of a flea. The physical weakness of a flea. 
So here was the king of Israel with his 3,000 well-trained troops hunting a dead dog and a flea, in a manner of speaking. And the David was of no more danger to Saul than would have been a dead dog. And he had really no more physical strength within himself and his little army against Saul's army than a flea. So David saw the entire scenario here as being really utterly pathetic and quite ludicrous and even foolish. As though he is saying here in verse 14, Saul, what on earth are you doing? And why are you pursuing this line? And you'll notice what he says then in verse 15. Yahweh therefore be judge and judge between me and thee and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of thine hand. He could have delivered himself, remember, when he cut off the robe of Paul's, uh, uh, Saul's skirt. He could have delivered himself, but that was not David's way. He had left everything in the hands of Yahweh, and Yahweh would deal with this matter as he would see fit. I think we made the point at our last class that so very often, when we face a difficulty, when we face something that looks like a brick wall, we try to fight our way out of it. We turn to the left, we turn to the right, we look behind us, we try and go forward, we try and climb over, we do anything except leave the matter prayerfully in the hands of Yahweh. It is when we do that that we see the most astonishing results in our lives. So very, very often. But that is the thing that should be done and that is the way in which it should be done. But you notice here that David makes this statement, Yahweh judge between me and thee. You know, the word there that is rendered as judge is a word which relates to the gathering of evidence. It can apply to an advocate who presents the evidence to a court and it can also apply to a judge who actually passes the judgment. So it is really as though David is saying to Saul here, look Saul, I leave it totally in the hands of Yahweh to gather all the evidence of the things that you have done against me. I leave it to him to present that evidence as an advocate and I leave it to him to act as judge in the whole matter. And that was the extent of confidence that David had not only in Yahweh but in his own honesty and in his own integrity in his dealings with Saul. So therefore there's a great reminder there to ourselves, isn't it? To always examine our motives particularly if we find ourselves in conflict with somebody else within the brotherhood among our brethren. Always very carefully examine our motives and always remember that our first and primary duty is to always stand for that which is right in the eyes of Yahweh, to uphold his righteousness above all other considerations. And that is what, that is what David was endeavouring to do. And so in verse 16 we now find that it came to pass when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Rotherham renders that literally from the Hebrew, Thy voice! Is this my son, David? And those words help us to see perhaps that it was probably during either the very early hours of the morning or the darkness of night. It implies that Saul could not see David clearly, but yet he recognised the voice. He also recognised the style of words too. And that voice would have registered chillingly upon Saul as he realised how close he had come to losing his life. And here he is now with a sudden change, a complete change when have we ever read of Saul speaking of David as my son? Thy voice, is this my son, David? It brought him up very, very sharply. And a realisation of the whole circumstances and the situation in which he had been placed. The word says that Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Which means that he wept openly. He wept loudly. He wept without restraint. Because, you see, he is not only aware of how close he has come to death, but he is aware and had been hit very, very hard by the mercy that David had shown to him. And the integrity of David's heart, which could not be denied, especially when he says in verse 15, Yahweh therefore be the judge and judge between me and thee. 
And back in verse 12, when he had said to Saul, But mine hand shall not be upon thee. And you see how much Saul had to appreciate the mercy that David had shown toward him. While at the same time, he realises with a great chill just how close he had come to death. And that caused Saul to break down and to cry in this way. But what we've got to note out of this is something that has been alluded to in the talk that uh, Brother Mark gave us as an introduction tonight. And that is that Saul here was moved purely by the emotional stimulation of the moment. There is nothing here to indicate whatever, anywhere in the words that follow even, that uh, Saul was in any sense whatever basing his attitude upon a renewed attitude toward God or his truth. And we notice throughout the remainder of this very dramatic and very moving little incident that David makes no attempt whatever for reconciliation with Saul. Saul makes an appeal to David in a certain sense. But David makes no attempt at reconciliation with Saul. None whatever. And if we ask ourselves why that is, we can answer it readily enough from David's own words that come later. That he knew that Saul had not really changed. He knew that Saul was not a spiritually minded man and never would be so far as David could see. You notice that when Saul appeals to him, David doesn't say, well look, if all is forgiven and all is forgotten, may I be restored to your court and may I once again take my place among the soldiers of Israel and become reconciled to the king and to the court. Nothing of that whatever. David does make, makes no request for that whatever. And so you see, David could read Saul the same way as you can open and read a book. And as has been mentioned tonight already, there is nothing wrong with being emotional about the truth. In fact, we really should be emotional about the truth. We should be moved by the truth. There are many things in the, in the Word of God that just sit and read it, can move us in a very, very emotional way. But here is the point, brethren and sisters, Emotional as we, as we may be in regard to the truth or matters related to the things of the word, the emotions must always be governed by the intellect. That is the point of it. And David understood that. Saul didn't. Saul didn't have a clue. Saul thought that emotion was everything. As long as you were emotional and shed a few tears and said how much you loved God and loved David or anybody else, then that was all that was required. But David knew better than that. And he knew that although it was wonderful to become emotional and filled up with a real sense of emotional appreciation for the love of God and the power of the Word, the wonderful examples of faith and faithfulness that are found in the Word, for all of that, David knew that the emotions must be governed by the intellect. And if we ever come to a stage at any time in our lives where we become ruled by the emotion. And the intellect, the intellectual understanding of the truth and our knowledge of the truth becomes pushed to one side and the emotions predominate, then we will find ourselves in bother. Because we are not to be ruled by the emotions. But if they are not governed by the spirit of the truth, they're governed by the flesh, one or the other. And these sort of things sometimes will happen particularly perhaps within our own families. I know that that is where there are often problems that arise. And you know, there have been cases, quite a number of cases, in regard to certain things in the truth, where we have known brethren, and I'm not, just, I'm not talking about here, I'm talking about just circumstances that I've known of over the years, and that I've personally come in contact with, particularly in other parts of the world, where brethren for many, many years, 20, 30, 40 years, have followed a very strong line in regard to the truth on a particular issue, one which might be a contentious issue within the brotherhood in that particular area. Brethren who have followed a strong, positive line in defence of what the truth teaches, and then something happens within their own family, bring family into it. And the family, someone in the family takes an opposite line, and I've seen brethren of that long-standing attitude toward things in the truth turn completely around and take the opposite view. When for maybe 20, 30, 40 years they'd known that that view was wrong. 
Now you see, that's what happens when the emotions take over the intellect. When what we know to be the truth becomes of secondary value. Our emotional attachment to individuals becomes in our own sight of greater importance. Now you see, there's a great lesson in that, brethren and sisters, and it's something that we must never forget, because what it means, if that ever happens to us, what it means is that we are suppressing the word of God, that our emotional relationship might predominate, or our emotional feelings regarding any particular matter might predominate. What we're doing when we do that is to suppress the word of God. And we're virtually putting ourselves, uh, in the case of uh, the disciples, on the night when the Lord was taken, when he quoted to them the words of Zechariah, and he said, the, sh- the shepherd shall be taken, the sheep shall be scattered. And they said, we don't want to hear that. That's not going to happen. We'll never leave you. We'll never forsake you. You can trust us. But what happened? It didn't work out the way they claimed that it would, did it? because they were emotionally involved at that point, rather than carefully listening to what the Lord told them. Because what the Lord told them was straight from the Word of God. So that in effect they were saying, we don't want to hear that. Now we've got to be very, very careful always in matters like that. Saul didn't really know any better than that. But you see, here Saul comes to light now, and he says to David, thou hast showed this day how thou hast dealt well with me. Notice he says here, Thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And he realises that at this point he must acknowledge this. So you see, when he says in verse 18, Thou hast shown this day how that thou hast dealt well with me. Saul is really acknowledging that David's faith or knowledge of the truth was not merely theoretical. David just didn't know the truth in theory, he was, despite his weaknesses, which he shares with us, he was a living and practical example of the word in action. What we're seeing here in chapter 24, in David's behaviour, and the words that he speaks, and his whole actions, are really an example of a living and practical faith. The word of God in action. And from that we must always remember that the Word of God is capable of transforming lives to a pattern after the likeness of the divine character, even though ever so imperfectly, yet it will be done if the Word operates. So in effect Saul is saying here, this very day you have given me an illustration, David, of the truth, of the power of the truth in action. Then look what he says again in verse 18. He says, Yahweh had delivered me into thine hand. Yahweh had delivered me into thine hand. You see, Saul is very lucid at this point. He is lucid, but he is emotional. And he is being governed by emotion. As we shall see even more clearly in a short while. You see, Saul had not forgotten Yahweh. We might think to ourselves, well, by this time in his life, Saul no longer even thinks about Yahweh, he's forgotten all about him. But notice what he says, he not only acknowledges Yahweh, but he acknowledges the hand of Yahweh behind that incident in the cave. Yahweh had delivered me into thine hand. He not only hadn't forgotten Yahweh, but he had still remembered that Yahweh has the power to work in the life of an individual or individuals or within a nation. What Saul says here is the cold, blunt truth of the matter. And yet, couldn't Saul see that what he was saying was tantamount to an admission that Yahweh had, if that was correct, set a restraining hand upon Saul to prevent him from harming David? Couldn't he see that? There were things that he could see, but there were things that he couldn't see. And that, brethren and sisters, is why we always have to get our thinking on the principles of the truth straight. They've got to be right. It's no good than being half right. Here Saul could see that Yahweh was responsible for delivering him into the hand of David, and David could have done with him anything he wanted to. He could see that. But he could not see the whole picture. And he could not see that while he was admitting that, he was also admitting that it was Yahweh who was stopping him from destroying David. He could see part of it, but he couldn't see the rest. 
how it illustrates to us that we have to have our thinking very, very clear. So in verse 19, he goes on to say, you've acted quite differently to what a man would do normally. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore Yahweh reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And there is a statement, if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? And the natural man would answer to that, and in fact, no, of course he wouldn't, he'd be stupid. If you've got your enemy pinned up against a wall, and he's defenceless, and you've got a sword in your hand, there's only one thing to do, and that is to cut him to ribbons. But Saul poses the question, knowing the answer, knowing that a spiritually minded man would not do that especially when it was wrong to do it, as under these circumstances. So he says, Wherefore, Yahweh, reward thee for that thou hast done unto me this day. It's strange to try and imagine Saul speaking like this. Here he is at this highly emotional moment, momentarily forgetting his own purpose, which was to kill David. The only reason he's there at Engedi is to kill David. And now he says, Wherefore Yahweh reward thee for what you've done to me this day. Strange, isn't it? You see, first he was this way and then he was that way. And yet we've been able to see tonight that he was quite lucid. But you see what he really was? He was a double-minded man. And as James says in chapter 1 and verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And if there's any example in Scripture of an unstable man, it's King Saul. And you know there in James 1 verse 8, that word unstable, when James says that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, it's a term which means unable to set in order. So you may have someone who's got a quite a comprehensive knowledge and understanding of the truth. But they can't get their priorities right. And they can't see how they should act in this situation, but how they should act in that situation, which might require something altogether different. So that's the meaning of the word. Unable to set in order. Hence the translators have rendered it quite adequately as unstable. But the basic idea there is unable to set in order. And Saul couldn't even do that with the thoughts of his own mind. So there's some powerful lessons there for us, isn't there? And so now he says in verse 20, something that is even more astonishing to us. And now, says Saul, Behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. This is astonishing. Coming from Saul... Absolutely astonishing. You see, there's good reason to believe that he had never ever really forgotten those stinging words of Samuel as recorded in chapter 15 and verse 28. Remember when Samuel told him it had all come to an end. Yahweh shall rend the kingdom away from thee and give it to a neighbour of thine that is better than thee. It seems as though Saul never ever forgot those words. And it had really been a fear of this judgment coming to pass that had haunted Saul for so long. And Saul now knew absolutely that Yahweh's blessing and spirit had been taken away from him and that Yahweh was with David. And you know, this was not a sudden light of inescapable truth that has now suddenly entered into the mind of Saul. If you trace back through these chapters, you'll find that it's been coming again and again, with increasing light upon the mind of Saul. I'll just mention a couple of chapters, which no doubt Brother Graham will put into the notes. Chapter 16 and verse 18, the very next chapter after which Samuel had spoken. In chapter 18, verse 12, verse 15 and verse 29. In chapter 19 and verse 1. In chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. In chapter 22 and verse 8. In chapter 23 and verse 17. 
And now again here in chapter 24 and verse 20, in every one of those passages there's an inkling in something that Saul says that shows that he is aware of the dangers confronting his own position as king over Israel. Wasn't something that just came to him like a blinding flashing light. And yet, despite those constant allusions to the fact that his days might well be numbered, and those of his family, so far as the throne was concerned, he kept on. And in chapter 25, God willing, we're going to be dealing with uh, Nabal and Abigail. There's a change of uh, a beautiful little uh, section there. Absolutely tremendous, the 25th chapter. But when we get back to chapter 26 again, we'll find Saul back on the warpath after David again. He kept on. And he seemed unable to realise that he was not simply fighting David, he was fighting Yahweh. Because here out of his own mouth, he says, Behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king. Isn't that a tragic state of affairs? And in going on and on in pursuing this vendetta with the objective of destroying David, thinking that by taking his life, he's going to retain the throne for himself and his seed after him. He's completely denying the fact that Yahweh has said that David will be the next king. It's sad, isn't it? It's very, very tragic. But whatever we do, even in moments of lack of wisdom, let us not fight Yahweh. There have been many cases of that throughout Scripture, haven't they? Remember when Korah, Dathan and Abira came and fronted up to Moses and Aaron and they said, look, you take too much upon yourselves. All the people are as holy as you are. Who do you think you are? Thereby completely overlooking the fact that Moses and Aaron stood where they did in the midst of Israel by divine appointment. And those men, Korah, Dathan and Abiram, and many like them throughout history, who have adopted a similar attitude and gone to men placed similarly to Moses and Aaron as they did with the disciples and the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ as they did with the prophets down through the ages and have said to them, who do you think you are? Who are you to tell us what we ought to do? They don't realise that they're not just fronting up to a man. They're facing Yahweh and showing contempt for his word if Yahweh has appointed those men. So in verse 21, toward the end of the chapter, in his last words, Saul says to David, Swear now therefore unto me by Yahweh, Again, he mentions the divine name as being the greatest thing that David could possibly swear by, the greatest word that could ever be used, showing there an element of, of reverence. Swear now therefore unto me by Yahweh, that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. Isn't that absolutely pathetic? He is begging of David, the very opposite, of what he himself was trying to do to David. It shows you the extremes of the flesh, doesn't it? And really it was a pointless question. It was a pointless pathetic plea because after all, showing how demented that request was, why should David even think of harming any of Saul's family when he was unwilling even to harm Saul himself? There was no need to ask that question. David had already clearly shown his attitude towards Saul. And wouldn't it be so toward his family? And you see, although these words might sound as though they're the voice of a humble man, it's really the same old selfish streak coming out in Saul. He wants his family preserved. He doesn't want his name cut off from Israel. But he's thinking about himself. And you'll notice that in this plea, he offers David nothing in return. Not that that is essential, but nevertheless, surely there should have been some attempt on Saul's part to repudiate the past foolishness of his own actions. But nothing is done. So in verse 22, at verse 22, David swear unto Saul. And that was it, just a very simple statement. David swear unto Saul. 
So David readily agreed to this plea from Saul. There was no problem for David whatsoever and he lived by it and he maintained it. But you'll notice also on David's part in making this oath to Saul he asked nothing in return. That's very important. It was Saul who was doing the pleading and it was Saul who should have made the offer of reconciliation in the fullest possible extent to David. He offered him nothing. When David agreed to accommodate Saul's wishes and to say you have no need to worry about your family as far as I'm concerned, I will do them no harm. He didn't say that, by the way, Saul, there's just one or two things that I'd like to see put right before we settle this matter finally. Not a word, nothing. That's the end of it. Verse 22 then says, and Saul went home. Very simply stated, isn't it? And Saul went home. That is, he went home to Gibeah, where he lived. But let's ask ourselves in that simple statement, and Saul went home. In what frame of mind did he go home? Had his confession on this occasion that he poured out to David, had it really changed him? Well, certainly future events would have proved otherwise. So once again, brethren and sisters, Saul was being given an opportunity to see the true light. He could have gone home in peace. He could have gone home in peace with David and in peace with all the men of David and all others whom he imagined were in opposition to him or opposed him. He could have gone home in peace. He could have sent for men whose hearts God had touched. Remember that verse in chapter 10 and verse 26? How that when Saul was anointed king, and Yahweh knew very, very well that Saul met the people's choice. He gave them the sort of king that they wanted. But instead of just washing his hands in the whole matter and saying, well now stand back everybody and see what Saul will do as king over this nation. Remember that Yahweh sent home with Saul back to Gibeah a band of men whose hearts God had touched. He was going to make every endeavour, was Yahweh, to see that Saul would make the grave, that he would become a spiritually minded man, that he would lead that nation in the spirit of the truth. Yahweh did everything to help him, and not only that, from that time on, he gave him opportunity after opportunity to see what was right, and to do what was right. And here is one of them, humbled as a result of this, of this astonishing, remarkable occasion of this meeting with David. He could have gone home a humbled man, a man seeking peace with man and God. And he could have done that and sought his God through the spirit of the word of truth and through wise counsel from brethren who could have helped him and would gladly have done so. But he didn't do so. What a reminder that is to us, brethren and sisters, that every day Yahweh gives us opportunities to serve him, gives us opportunities to grow and to develop in our understanding of the truth and the practice of it, to show the truth in action, becoming the word made flesh, even though ever so imperfectly, and how this teaches us that we must learn to value the opportunities that Yahweh gives us and not to waste any of them. And so it says Saul went home. But by implication, in the next words, it points out very pointedly that David did not go with him. A rather simple-minded man may have been moved by the emotion of the moment, as was Saul. And with tears may have sought a genuine reconciliation. We might ask ourselves, why didn't David do that? And the answer is because David had sufficient spiritual discernment to know that Saul's altered mood did not necessarily mean a change of heart. David was cautious because after all, a softened feeling is one thing, but true repentance is an altogether different thing. And he didn't see that in Saul. 
So why should he have joined in the emotional tide that had flooded over Saul and joined in this emotional thing without a a comprehension of what the truth required? And you know, one authority that I came upon once made this observation in regard to this verse. I don't remember who it was now, but I wrote it down at the time. And this is what it said. A gush of feeling does not necessarily mean a grasp of principle. That's very, very sound. And it's a very excellent thought on verse 22. A gush of feeling does not necessarily mean a grasp of principle. They had a good grasp of all the principles involved in regard to divine worship and fellowship, but Saul did not. Saul had a gush of feeling, but without the grasp of principle. Paul on the day of judgment is going to have to look at all these things, isn't he? And we'll have to think about the squandered opportunities that were given to him. And let us feel very, very strongly, brethren and sisters, that we will remain dedicated to the way of the truth, that we will take hold of those opportunities that Yahweh so generously gives to all of us, and to take the best advantage of them. And then the chapter begins, or rather ends on the note before the beginning of chapter 25, that David and his men get them up into the hole. So that by implication, they now return to En Gedi. So Saul went one way, and David went the other. And that was a terrible tragedy, but these two men could not be at one. Saul goes one way, David goes another. And you know the reason for that? is because of exactly what Amos says in chapter 3 and verse 3, where they're asking of a simple question. Can two walk together except they be agreed? We know, of course, that Amos 3 and verse 3 is speaking of the relationship between Yahweh and his people. But the principle still applies. It applies wherever it is needed, wherever it is applicable. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And you know that phrase in Amos, except, except they be agreed, is translated from a Hebrew word which means except they meet at an appointed meeting place. That's the meaning of that expression. And of course the place where we all have to meet is right here. In the word of God. That is the appointed meeting place where men see eye to eye. Where they become one. Where they understand the principles. They grasp the principle. As we quoted from an unknown author or a a, no no longer remembered author. But there it is you see. And Saul and David went their separate ways. There are those who might say what a shame it was. You know, couldn't have David perhaps made some superhuman or really great effort to try and become reconciled with Saul? How can you become reconciled to somebody who lives on emotion rather than upon a clear, well-illuminated understanding of the principles of divine truth and divine worship? How can you do that? If it could have been done, David would have done it. But you see, David also knew the statement that we have in Romans 12 and verse 21, which is also, was also known in the days of David, which says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And remember verse 13 here? Wickedness proceeded from the wicked. What does the Apostle say? Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if you cannot literally overcome evil with good, if it it can't be done in a literal sense, as in this case here, then by joining with evil, or an evil mind, you're certainly not going to improve your own situation, or the situation of the other person, while they remain in that state. And so we come to the end of this chapter then. David swear unto Saul, Saul went home, but David and his men get them up to the hole. Now at this stage, we want to show you a transparency that we had done, which shows us the wanderings of Saul up until this point. Just to accommodate those who are showed you respect, thank you. Nice little wave there. We're going to try and 
explain this as best we can. It might look like a, uh, a piece of modern art to you, but I can assure you that a great deal of work and effort went into this. And so we're just going to look at what happened. Where David has been up to this point. You remember that he came from Bethlehem because he was the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. So he went from Bethlehem up to Gibeah, which is where Saul uh, was. He spent some time, the court of Saul. Then he went back home to Bethlehem, as we saw in chapter 17. From there he went right across to the valley of Elah, where he slew the Philistine. After that he came back again to Gibeah. And then when he was forced to flee from the presence of Saul, remember he went up to Ramah, which was where Samuel lived. That incidentally is only five miles north of Jerusalem. So all of this area here, not very far. When he left Samuel, he had to flee to Nob, where was the slaughter of the priests. And from there, he took off and had to come way down here into the wilderness of Paran. The next time we find David is over here at Gath. And then from Gath, we find him in the cave Adullam, which was right here. And isn't it remarkable, all of this area, all of these movements so far, are all within the province of the tribe of Judah. So here is the cave Adullam here. From the cave Adullam, he then went over to the forest of Haref, which we found here and then came back to rescue the people of Kyla, who promptly showed their appreciation by turning him into Saul. Delightful people. And then, from Kyla, he came right the way down here, to this area near Carmel, just beyond Ziph, and from thence, he went to Engedi, which is where we find him now. So we'll just leave that up there for a little while, and uh, you can have a little bit of a look at that, while we just have a brief look at the death of Samuel, and we point out at the stage that we have done, thanks to Brother John Weedon, a number of copies of what you see on the screen there, and uh, I'm sure there's at least one for a family, maybe a few more, and when you take your notes at the end of the study tonight, the end of the class tonight, you'll also be able to take one of those as well. So you can see it up there for now, and from time to time we'll put that up, uh, if we can remember to do so, as we follow David in his various journeys. So chapter 25 then begins with the death of Samuel. And we just simply want to leave our study here for tonight. But one of the things that it's important for us to point out here is that it does not say that Samuel died next week or on the following Thursday fortnight or whatever it was. And this is one of the problems that we have in the chronology of the life of David. Because there is no time given, there's no chronology given. It might have been some weeks afterwards, it may have been some months afterwards. It may even mean a year or so later. We don't know. While David was uh, 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 keeping himself hidden from Saul, Saul had gone back to Gibeah, and nothing more is, is heard of Saul until we get right through this 25th chapter. And so what we read here is that Samuel died, but we've got no idea when. It's rather interesting that according to Josephus, Samuel had ministered for 18 years during Saul's reign. Now we know that he ministered, of course, before that, but it's virtually the only guy that we have. It may be right, it may not be. But one thing we do know about Josephus, and that is that in the time in which he wrote, which was in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he would have had access to uh, um, uh, information handed down by word of mouth, he would have had access to documentation and whatnot, which would be no longer extant today. So we cannot really say that Josephus was wrong, but there's no way of saying either that he was absolutely right. But we would emphasise that it's virtually about the only guide that we have. But what we should remember at the, time of, at the time of Samuel's death is that during the time of Samuel's era, we might say, it was the beginning of a new era in Israel because it brought about, during his time, the introduction of the monarchy but it also brought about the beginning of the role of the prophets in Israel. Now that becomes very, very important. So actually chapter 25 and verse 1 is a very significant verse for that reason. Now of course we know that Moses was a prophet. I'm not saying, we're not suggesting that there were no prophets until Samuel. But that's not what we're saying. We're saying that it introduced an era of the prophets. 
Something like the, uh, the appointment of the priesthood, in effect. Right up until the destruction of the, uh, not long before the destruction of the, the kingdom and the end of uh, uh, Old Testament times, Yahweh provided a continuous run of prophets to try and keep the king and the priests and the people on the straight and narrow way of keeping to the word. So this really was the beginning of the new era. We know, for example, Abraham is called a prophet. There would have been many prophets before, Mo- before Samuel. But Samuel was the one who started the school of the prophets. Now, keeping a hand in there, if you'll turn with me just for a moment to Acts chapter 3, and at verse 24, you'll notice a very significantly worded statement here. We'll read uh, verse uh, 22 and 23 just to pick up the context of it. But in Acts chapter 3 and in verse 22, it says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. This is Deuteronomy 18. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among his people. If they wouldn't hear Christ, that would be it. And of course, that's a prophecy of AD 70. Then verse 24 goes on to say, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel, and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Now you see the significance of that verse? You see how really it's highlighting the point that we've made. That with the, with the period of, of Samuel... A new era began in Israel. Not only the era of the monarchy, but also the era of the prophets. A continuous run of prophets. So that Peter says in verse 24, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. So you can see how important that was. And now here we come to the time when there is the death of Samuel. The death of Samuel, one of the great leaders, one of the most outstanding figures in the history of Israel. And now he has died. But let's look, as a concluding thought tonight, to Psalm 99, where we have a picture of the future. Samuel in many ways did not have a happy life. Things didn't always go well. He had a very, very obstinate king of whom he despaired. He had to anoint David as king, yet not knowing how David would survive, I mean, other than through the hand of Yahweh, and all the sufferings that Samuel had to stand by and see David undergo. We read of a time of the future. In Psalm 99, notice just the first three to four verses. Yahweh reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. Yahweh is great in Zion, and he is high above all the people. Let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Aren't they awesome words depicting the glory and the majesty of Yahweh's manifestation in the earth? But you know when it's set? Look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon Yahweh, and he answered them. Now let's notice that verse. Moses and Aaron among his priests and Samuel among them. You know, Moses was never a priest. Moses was never a priest. But here he's spoken of as being with Aaron and Samuel and the other priests. This is speaking of the kingdom. When Moses will become a king priest with all those who are raised to honour and glory. And so the psalm ends upon that note in verse 9. Exalt Yahweh our Elohim and worship at his holy hill the mount of the altar for Yahweh our God is holy.